Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Again, once again, church, good morning to our friends, guests with us this morning. And just pronouncing, Pastor Alex was wondering how how it was going to go, saying Areopagite. And that is no small task. He did very, very well. Let me tell you, I'm probably going to flub that when I get to that point. I am sure. What do you folks fear the most in life? For some people, like me, it's heights. For some people, it's claustrophobia. Enclosed spaces, right? Most people, according to polls, this is true. Most people are universal that they have one fear above all others. It's doing what I'm doing right now, public speaking. And I would say for Christians, there's a parallel fear to that that may even be greater than that, and that is evangelism, sharing your faith. It's pretty much a given, according to people that study this, that the average Christian has not shared his or her faith with anyone within the last year or so. And if that's true, that's a problem for a couple of reasons. I'll give you two big ones. Number one, if you're not, you're disobeying a direct command of God. That's what the series is about that concludes today, the Christian's commands. And the third one is to go and make disciples, as the Great Commission mandates that we do. It's a mission. Right, Our first command that we looked at was baptism as a sign of new life. and We looked at the Lord's Supper, which is about our communion with Christ and His cross. And Thirdly, we have here the command of disciple-making. And what I'm going to try to get across to you is a way that you could just take five to give five. What does that mean? You can take five minutes to give five great truths of the gospel that may help you here. And the second reason we don't share our faith, we've got to talk about that. If we don't share the gospel, if we don't share that when God gives us the opportunity, we're really not loving our neighbor as ourselves. if you think about it. Really think about that because we would be withholding from them that which they need the most, which is the life-saving, life-transforming truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That would actually be the most unloving thing we could do to someone. If we have the opportunity, remember God's love, agape love, that's a self-sacrificial love that meets needs. Is there any greater need than for people to receive the truth? Now, why do we fear doing this? I'll give you three big reasons, not all inclusive. The first one, I think we can all relate to these. The first one is the fear of man. The fear that, you know, I might get mocked. I might upset people. Somebody might call me a Bible Nazi or something. I might create conflict. It may not go over well. I may not be the most personable, popular person in my group. And yes, that may happen, by the way. Rejection and ridicule come with the territory in evangelism. Get used to it. And then some of us, to excuse that, say, well, I just don't have the time. I wish I had the time. For some people, a select group of people, that could be a factor, but we should know that's not really the main issue. 
as someone once fond of saying, we all have the same 24 hours in the day as everyone else. It's not a lack of time, but how you choose to spend it. So it's hard to deny that truth. Second one would be feel of fear of failure. Failure. I feel alone. I'm unconvincing. I don't think I'm really that good at this. I'm powerless when I think of evangelizing. It's just, it's too, too big for me. I can't do it. Well, that fear to a certain extent is healthy to have, actually, because it reminds us that we have to rely on the Holy Spirit and His power, as Pastor George was talking about today, in evangelism. And it's also unwarranted church because this church knows very well that we rely on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Therefore, we can just sow and sleep, right? Sow seeds of the gospel and go to sleep because if we're faithful to the message, God takes care of the rest. Third reason would be fear of ignorance. I think this is a big one. I just don't know what to say. I, I just, you know, I don't know the Bible like that, that well, and the gospel. I just don't know what to say. Uh, I'm not prepared to do evangelism. I'm going to sound like an idiot if I try. Or I, I won't have an answer to a big question. Right? I'm going to look foolish. Well, in response to that fear, God actually tells us something very basic. There's a way around that. Be prepared. Be prepared. Understand what the gospel is, the nature of it, and the kingdom and prayerfully find somebody to tell the truth, as 1 Peter 3 always tells us. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what this message, by the way, is aiming to do. Preparation, because there's many methods, some are better than others, that teach us how to share our faith. We've shared over the past several years, many of you, many of these with you in the church, we've talked about the way of the master, right? Ray Comfort, going through the Ten Commandments. Another one was tell the truth, two ways to live, three crowns. And they're all good. They're all good, biblically sound means of sharing your faith. No one way is perfectly suited for every single person that you'll meet. And we find that in the example of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. They had different ways of approaching people and sharing. But there are times that we don't have a lot of time to share something about Christ and the gospel. So it would be good if we had something in preparation that was concise, but yet that was coherent, cogent. We could get that across. An example of that, I just came across a story of a Christian man. He was on a flight, was taking off from Charlotte to go to Seattle. After takeoff, he said this, quote, the crew announced that our plane was experiencing engine failure and that we needed to prepare for a crash landing. The attendants ran frantically up and down the cabin, preparing us. I missed their explanation on exactly how to brace. I wondered if I was doing it right, so I looked around. I saw a grown man crying. I saw a couple holding hands tightly. I had never felt so out of control or totally exposed or honestly so scared. Three rows back from the back of the plane in a middle seat with absolutely no ability to change anything, of what was to happen, I prayed through my mind that in the next few minutes I could be meeting God. People were weeping, chest to their knees. End quote. That man on that plane went on to preach a 30-second sermon. You want to hear that? Anybody want to hear a 30-second sermon? I thought so. That was rhetorical. Quote. He said, I turned my attention to the young woman sitting on my right, 
We'd had a pleasant conversation before takeoff. Note that. But now she was sobbing, curled into a brace position. I leaned toward her and asked, if we die in the next few minutes, do you know what's going to happen? She said something about growing up Catholic and going to purgatory or heaven or something. She was unsure. And I said, I'm going to share with you why my wife and I have hope right now. I hope that's okay. She said it was. And I then started preaching to a larger group in the rows behind me, loudly over the sound of the plane. I don't want to scare anyone, but I want you to know why my wife and I have hope right now. We have peace with God. That's a universal want, by the way, folks. He continued, a couple of heads turned and looked at me. The God who made everything wants to make peace with us, even though we've broken his world. He loves you so much, he left heaven to make peace with sinners by dying on a cross. His name is Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the risen Lord, and you'll have peace with God. No one laughed. No one scoffed. I don't know if anyone heard or responded to my 30-second sermon in those frantic moments, but I'm glad God gave me the courage to not stay silent. I'd been meditating on the gospel for years. Now it was coming out thanks to the prodding of the Holy Spirit, end quote. What that man did is he just gave a really condensed version of what I'm going to share with you now, grounded in this text of Scripture. Take five to give five. That can happen on a plane. It can happen at a coffee shop. It could happen over dinner, in your home, what have you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to charge you, I'm going to encourage, exhort you, as it were, to be ready to share the hope that you have within you with gentleness and respect. And all you've got to do is basically take five minutes at a minimum to share five really important doctrinal truths about your faith for people to know. You ready? We're going to go through them one at a time. Five things that you need to communicate to people. God, man, inability, gospel, and faith. That's all you need. Five things. And I'm going to give you those five in, so you can do it in five minutes because I want you to be both comprehensive and coherent when you have a relatively short period of time. Some people have called this the elevator pitch. You know, you're going up in an elevator. you got 30 seconds with somebody. What are you going to tell them? You're in line at Publix, dry cleaners, whatever. This comes in really handy. And it comes from our text in the flow here. The Apostle Paul, this is his second missionary journey, Acts 17. He's the first theologian of the church, first church planter, so we should listen. He's been hunted, he's been hated, he's been hassled by the time he gets to Athens, Greece, by way of Thessalonica and Berea. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him there. And while doing that, he's just always mission-minded. He's reasoning from the Jew to the Jews in the synagogues. He'd always start there first. And he would start by making an argument, almost a debate. He was apologizing, apologetics, defending the faith. He wasn't saying, I'm sorry for following Jesus. He's giving a reason for the hope. What motivated him to do it? I want you to see verse 16 in this text above where we're at. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was worked up when he saw image bearers. He saw people failing to thank God and give him the glory that he's due. Instead, they're making images of God in man's own image, and they're worshiping the creature instead of the creator. We shouldn't like that either. That's what he saw in Athens. That's what moved him 
like it should have. Fight for the faith. Sow gospel seeds with whomever you have the opportunity to. And he picked a good place to do it. A place like South Florida, but even more so. Athens was a major metropolitan city in the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire at that time. It would resemble a place like Paris, Rome, New York City, L.A., maybe Miami. So it's very relevant for us. Athens was a home of the great philosophers of that time, the big three centuries, a few centuries before, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And also, idols to mythical Greek gods were all over the place in this city. Greek religion was basically just a tribute to man and the powers of nature. They had a temple over here for Zeus. They had one for Apollos. And they had one for all kinds, etc., etc. In fact, there was so much idolatry taking place there that uh, somebody said, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So they were heavy thinkers. Two groups in particular are mentioned in this chapter. Groups of thinkers, philosophers that stuck out that Paul was dealing with in this new religion. In fact, they wanted to hear more when he started. They said, oh, you're a proclaimer of foreign gods. They're actually thinking of First, you had the Epicureans. The Epicureans. They followed the school of hedonism. You've heard that word before. They believe that pleasure is everything in life. Life should be free from pain, superstition, stress. We get an advertising campaign from their idea. If it feels good, do it. That's the Epicurean. They were secular. They didn't believe in the supernatural. And they're thinking, really, if you think about it today, is at the foundation of the sexual revolution, which is huge, and you see that in secular media and academia, etc. The second group were the Stoics, and they rejected somewhat this idea of pagan idolatry, but they believed in a world god or pantheism, Pantheism is the idea, still very prevalent today, especially with people in the East and New Age religions, that God is in everything in nature. God is in you. God is here. God is in the seats. God is, is all over the place in that way. Um, and if you could just connect with your natural God, with Mother Nature, or your energy, your life force, okay, you could do that with a lifestyle of self-denial. Discipline, self-control. A Hindu or a Buddhist would think similarly today. People even go as far as fitness, self-help, to be part of this pantheistic God. So the Epicureans, if you spoke to them, they might say, just enjoy life. And the Stoics would say, endure life. Just get through it. You can master your energy. Both ideas are messed up, of course. What they were trying to do is create a road, a path to utopia, as they saw fit. And amazingly, of course, that's similar to millions of people around the world today. So Paul goes to the marketplace head on. And so he starts with talking about God in verses 22 to 25. Look at the text. Verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Huh. He's in a high city, by the way. The Acropolis literally means high city. And then the Areopagus, I'm having trouble with that word too, is right next to it. That's otherwise known as Mars Hill. You've probably heard that before someplace. It was a marketplace. It was a town center. Think about the Pembroke Pines city town center across the street. That's kind of like what they're trying to be. It was kind of a main street where the community gathered. 
And Paul, note this, goes to where the people are. And he perceived, literally from the Greek, he noticed, he observed what's going on around him while he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. He found something he could work with, something lost people could relate to so he could turn the conversation from secular to spiritual. Keep that in mind. Some of these people we find were literally agnostic. You've heard that word before? People that are unsure, not sure of whether God exists or not. The Greek word for it is actually very interesting. Agnostic means anosis, without knowledge. And really a good translation of it is ignorant. They were ignorant of God. And so that's why some of these people with this yearning, this hunger to worship something, someone, put up this monument to the unknown God. And so Paul says, you know, we're both talking worship here. We have something in common. So listen, first impression, first words matter. Paul knew if he lost them in the beginning, he wasn't going to get them back. So he doesn't start by saying, you know, I've been sin sniffing, and I've come to know that you are dirty, wretched, hell-bound, idol-worshiping, heathenistic pagans, and you're on the way to hell, and let me tell you about Jesus. That's not the first thing out of his mouth. He says this instead in verse 23. I passed along. I observed the objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. I want to say this. You don't have to be an expert on every world religion or philosophy to take five and give five. You don't. That's too tall an order. Although I would say knowing a good amount of that information can be helpful. Pastor Alex talks about it's like putting a stone in someone's shoe gets them to think. However, you've known what it is, how people figure out when a bill, currency is counterfeit for real. You learn this at the Federal Reserve Bank. When they train someone to spot a counterfeit bill, they don't spend their focus and time looking at a counterfeit. They look at a real bill, and they know it backwards and forwards, and that's their focus. So when they finally come in contact with counterfeit, they know that it's counterfeit because it doesn't look like the real thing. And that's what we want to do with the gospel. So Paul realized something hasn't changed in 2,000 years. People, whether they're atheistic or agnostic, they long for God. They long or hunger for some transcendence, something bigger than themselves. And we know that's true today. Even though organized religion numbers are down, According to people that track that sort of thing, spiritual awareness and hunger is up, people. Astrology is making a comeback. New Age mysticism, yoga, witchcraft has quadrupled recently. We talked about this in the Four Roads to God series. People want God, and God knows that. People were made to want God. The problem is they just want a God of their own making or their own name. Elvis, Elvis, the king of rock and roll. He apparently was fond, I heard, of wearing lots of gold jewelry from various religions. And when someone asked him why he wore things from so many different beliefs, he said something like, I'm just covering all my bases. Thank you very much. He went, no, I added that last part. But, but listen, that's true. That's people then and now. That hasn't changed. In fact, our current moral revolution, as bad as it is, you find a growing number of people 
see how bad things are, they're yearning again more and more for moral absolutes. Most people in our society understand something wrong. Something's terribly wrong. They just don't know how to fix it. The dilemma is Americans in the West in general, they've lost their souls. They want to find a moral compass. They just don't know where it is. And some people don't want to find what it is because they don't want an oppressive moral system. You Christians, you Jews, it's all about what you do, what you don't. Some people like that, by the way, Islam. But many people don't. But Paul is courageous enough to tell them, look, there's something about worship that I know that you don't. And I'm going to tell you. In fact, in the NIV, it renders the phrase, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And then he says, so no longer, here's the deal. Let me introduce you to God. All right? And that sounds like a proud exclusivist attitude, doesn't it? I have to tell you something right now as you try to deal with people in this culture. The Christian faith is at once the broadest and the narrowest religion faith system in the entire world. How, how so? It is a faith that admits every possible kind of person who wants to come. It's very broad in that sense. However, it only admits them in one way. And that's narrow. That's exclusive. A lot of people don't like the fact there's only one God. Just one. Listen, if there were two gods and two gods could save you, I would tell you where they are. We would talk about that. And if there was more than one way to get saved, if there was 12, we'd give you 12 sermons on how it is that you get saved. But that's not the case. There's only one gospel and one Savior Therefore, only one way to salvation, as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14. So there's no way to get around that. And verses 24 and 25 pick that up. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand. No, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. The New Living Translation says he satisfies every need. Folks, this is the most basic doctrine of our theology, God. It all starts there. Before you take time to talk to someone about man and sin, their inability to save themselves, which Paul's going to do here, we'll talk about that, or the need of a Savior or a Redeemer, which is gospel and faith, you have to establish the fact to some people that there is a creator over creation. And he's created us with a heavenly plan and a heavenly purpose. So the way you begin to witness to an atheist, atheos, without God, doesn't believe in God, or an agnostic, is you got to tell them about the doctrine of God. You have to answer the first of the big four questions in life, origins. How did we get here? Right? Paul answers that. He says, you have a desire to worship something. I know that. That's how we're wired as people. But it's not some statue that you made that sits in the temple here you're taking produce to. That's not it. In verse 25, he says, man wants to serve somehow God, help God along, even though God's the provider of everything, Jehovah Jireh, right? He takes pleasure in serving us, giving us every good gift from heaven, James 1. Listen, God is self-sufficient. Tell people, God doesn't need your help. Thank you. He's self-sufficient. We are God-dependent. 
We can do nothing without him, and there is nothing we can do for him that he needs. God does not need our opinion right now or our counsel on how to deal with the crisis in Cuba or in Haiti or in the culture or everything else. Thank you. He doesn't really need our help. I think he's got it covered. The book of Isaiah says so, and so does Romans 11. God doesn't take polls from us. What? Gee, what do I do next? doesn't happen. So the context of the verse here, Greco-Roman pagans, agnostics, they believed their false gods, idols, needed sacrifices. They needed help so that they, in turn, the people could be blessed. And what's amazing, Paul knew this. He wrote about this. He, Acts 9, prior to his conversion as Saul, he thought he could help God along with his Phariseeism. He was a Jew. If I just keep the law, if I do this, if I, 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 I'll be good with God. And that's what a Judaizer might think today, a Roman Catholic, a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, a Muslim. You have to serve God in order to be right with God. You have to work to be saved. Well, that's bad news because all the work that we do is nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. God's going to burn all that up. People have to understand they need a substitute for their sin. You and I need a sin eater. We need someone to serve us. And that's what Jesus said in Mark 10. He came to serve, provide a ransom. So he moves from God to man. Look at man, verse 26. This goes to 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is saying, not only did I made you, I'm ruler over you, I'm sovereign. He marked out the appointed times of mankind. You know, Psalm 139 says your days are counted. God knew in advance the day you would live and die, and that's what's going to happen. Right? We came from one common ancestor, the text just said. Made from one man. Who's that? That's Adam. There's only one race, folks. That's the human race. All right? And so Paul says, God decided beforehand when we nations should rise and fall. He determined or marked out their boundaries. This is something you can share with a theist someone that does believe in God that exists, right? At least they got that right, even though everything else they get may be wrong. But at least they know God's real. But if you're talking to an atheist, they most likely are a Darwinian evolutionist in their thinking, which means they believe that, man, you and I are a higher form of an animal we got here by accident, random chance, which means they think that nothing plus time plus chance equals everything, which is stupid, ludicrous, it's not even scientific, but that's what they believe. You can argue with someone if you're talking about this, by the way, Darwinism is dangerous. It gave us, gave us great thinkers and men and atheists like, oh, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Fidel Castro. Why were they atheists? How did that play out? They oppressed and killed people with the idea that some human beings are superior to others. As Darwin would put it, the survival of the fittest. That's how we got the Holocaust in the mid-20th century, and that's how we get the modern Holocaust of our time, abortion. So essentially, mankind has two choices. Either you evolved out of slime accidentally, or you've been intelligently designed by a designer. And so the implications of that are massive if you're trying to find your way, a road to God. So Paul's arguing here, God's given witness about himself 
through what he created. This is what we call general revelation or natural revelation. Like Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you see architecture that's really complex, really well put together, where do you think that came from? An architect, right? Had to be designed and built. Can't be there by accident. So this is what Paul is talking about. Where is he going with this? Verse 27. So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from us. Now God, through Paul, is moving in his argument here from creation to conscience. I call that the second of the four roads to God. We're talking about man here. We're talking about the heart. And so God reveals himself this way. So we'll seek out. We will grope for, feel, reach out. For God, in a way. So, folks, God is not as invisible or distant as people think. He's there. Quite the opposite. Romans 1.19 says, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And I know you've heard us quote before now, the Old Testament, Romans 3. Okay, none is righteous. None seeks after God. No, not one. For Pastor Bernie, which one is it? Do people seek after God, or do they not seek after God? It's a good question. Everyone, the argument is, everyone seeks after God in a superficial way, in some sense. That's why you have people that worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the horoscope. Everyone is looking for God to some degree, right? Everyone has a desire to worship and know their maker. We can know that he is this way. In fact, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's pretty, that's pretty dramatic. Oh, you don't believe God exists? You're a fool. Absolutely. He made us as image bearers to be in relationship with him. So God does want us to know him. The Old Testament says we were made for eternity. Okay? So God's given a universal external call to everyone on the planet to be to know him beyond a superficial way. That was a radical thought for these atheists, these Athenians, because they're like, man can come to know one God, the God, and be loved by that God, really? That's an amazing thought. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I love that he used by the way, this is a good thing to do. He used the poets, the secular poets, their own words to bring back to them as a way of giving truth. That's always effective. And three big categories of thought are in that little phrase there. Life, motion or meaning, and being, existence. These poets said there's got to be an answer to that. And we know it's God. In fact, you could boil down. This had a big impression on me coming to faith three decades ago almost now. For centuries, people have been wrestling with four big questions, and our take five to give five answers them all. You want to know what the four biggest questions people have, whether they know it consciously or not? I'll give them to you one at a time. I gave you one already. Origin. How would we get here? Paul's already answered it. God. The second one, meaning. Why am I here? Why am I here now? Why did God create me? Or, to put it another way, what is the meaning of life? If people today don't want that answered, I don't know what they do. 
Why am I here? Well, God answers that. In fact, the Westminster Confession summarizes it really nicely. Do you know why you're sitting in this chair right now? Do you know why you're breathing? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's it. That's it. The whole shebang. Very true. Three, moral. Why are we the way we are? Why is this world so messed up? What's right and what's wrong? And how do I know that? Right? There are people that study that, epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, here we're going to find out through learning about man and his inability. And then lastly, the fourth question, destiny. Where do we go from here? Where do I go after I die? And that's where gospel and faith will resolve that. You see, we, the unredeemed know of God. They just don't know enough. They don't want a relationship with him and be reconciled to him until their nature and their will changes. And that's what God does first in the heart. That has to happen because Paul's already told us as unredeemed, we are dead in trespasses and sin and children of wrath. And that speaks to the next point, inability. That's our third thing to give. Inability, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart, by the art and imagination of man. He's exhorting these Athenians, your inability to worship God as you want is fruitless. You can't do it. You can't worship idols. He's calling out subtly their sin of idolatry. Like one commentator said, God made us in his image, so it's foolish of us to make gods in our own image. Paul's telling them, you can't serve or please God on your own. You're incapable of earning his favor, his blessing, his salvation. You don't have the ability. You don't have the brains. You don't have the heart. You don't have the know-how and your spiritual condition to do that. You're in trouble. Everyone, listen, this is being very practical. Everyone you talk to about the gospel has to hear this point of inability first. If you don't talk sin and man's inability to save himself, you cannot talk salvation, which means then you have no need of a Savior. Without sin, there's no Savior or salvation. People need to understand the unredeemed nature of man is infected by sin. A lot of people that hunger for God, but a God of their own making, they'll try religion, maybe some other religion will work, but it's useless. Because salvation is by God's grace alone, not by works. That's what Paul's getting at here. So after giving the Athenians God, man, their inability to save, now he goes to the heart of the matter, which is gospel. Look at verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he suggests that all people, no, that's not what it says. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now we're talking salvation, gospel. He's moving from our inability to our accountability to God. God is a just judge. He made us but he can't have relationship with you if you're covered in sin 
and unrighteousness. The Bible says he cannot look upon sinners. He can't have fellowship with them. Something has to change. God's not going to change. That means you and me have to change. And Paul's giving this gospel truth that we're all commanded to change our hearts and minds about God and man and sin and Christ. And so the time has come for sinners to repent or turn to God away from a life of sin. He's told the Athenians, you're ignorant, but you're not totally ignorant of God and sin. You know there's a God, so that means you probably figured out he's a lawgiver, and you're accountable to him when you break his law. They know that much. And did you catch the first phrase, by the way, speaking in verse 30 about God's patience with us? The times of ignorance God overlooks. Paraphrase that Greek phrase a little bit better. Paul's teaching us that before Christ, he had not yet chosen to give the ultimate punishment to sinners who were morally blinded or agnostic. Ignorant. Folks, that's mercy. You know what mercy is? Not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. So now we have time for Christ. Now it's time for repentance and faith in Christ. That's what's being communicated. The gospel gift has been offered. It's out there. It's out there for everyone. We just need to maybe take five to give five. And by the way, you can take more than five minutes, by the way, if you have the opportunity. I often do. You can tell your friends, obey God's command to repent. Now, that's like using the military command about face, because repentance is actually pictured that way. I've been going in this direction. It's the wrong way. Repent means I go the other way. This way is sin. Repent. This way is Jesus. Truth. The gospel. That's what we're trying to communicate here. And about face. There comes a moment where you have to change your mind and your heart about Christ and sin and the desire to be right with him, to be at peace with him. Why? Verse 31. Because he's fixed the day again on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's two big ideas in that verse. The first is not only is God gracious and merciful, folks, but listen, you've got to get this out of your mouth. He's perfectly righteous. He's just. And if he's just, that means he's a judge too. He gave the law for us to live by, so he holds us accountable to it. And like any good judge, he meets out the consequence of breaking that law, which is judgment. That's what happens to lawbreakers. It should. Justice resonates in our heart naturally, doesn't it? But that's a stumbling block to people who love the idea of justice unless it pertains to them. Isn't that true? You get pulled over for speeding. And Popo's coming around a corner. He's got that ticket book out or the judge in the courtroom. And you're just thinking, mercy, mercy, mercy. Grace, grace, grace. Meaning just forgive. Forget what I did going 90 miles an hour in a school zone. Don't, don't. Just... People know they broke the law. They just don't want justice. We, we love justice when we've been offended. We hate it when we're the offender. 
sinners have been rebellious towards God, offending him for their entire lives. If God is a perfect judge, sin must be punished. He must judge or he's no God. He's not even the kind of God you want to follow. Paul's saying God can't overlook that for us. Sinners have to pay the price for their unrighteousness. That's the idea. Paul adds, God the Father is going to judge the world by God the Son, Jesus. He's the God-man. The Father appointed him to do this because he's the Messiah. He's the king of his kingdom. And get this, it's his. And the assurance, meaning the proof, the evidence of Jesus being the judge is his resurrection. That's the most significant world event in history. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That holy weekend 2,000 years ago is the biggest weekend in the history of mankind. Jesus rose in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He's worthy of being judge of the guilty and the dead because he rose and he conquered the guilt of sin and death. Remember in the moment after his death, he said it is finished. In essence, when he rose, his father said, Amen. Turn in the back of your Bibles to the book of Revelation in the 20th chapter. We need to be graphically reminded of this, of our Lord Jesus, the judge at the great white throne judgment. It says in the beginning of verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, verse 12, and I saw the dead, John the Apostle's writing, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. That's the book of life and death. Go to the middle of verse 13. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Middle of verse 14. This is the second death. You know, you die physically the first time. This is the spiritual. The second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a tough one. It's a tough text of Scripture to give and to hear. Good friend of mine, a pastor in another church who's an evangelist, he doesn't give the gospel without going to Revelation 20. It's a fixture. Because that may be the scripture that someone you're talking to, that loved one, that person on the plane or wherever, that's the one they need to hear. Hell must be preached. And it's a sentence, the judgment for the unredeemed who reject Christ and his sacrifice for sin. There's no way around it, you just heard it, their life, their works, their sin will be judged, they'll be burned up as useless before Christ, worthless, so you got to tell them if they don't accept Jesus as their substitute to pay for their sins, they will have to pay the eternal price, because that's justice, that's fair. Uh, you know, my kids would ask me when they're small, or they would say, Dad, that's not fair, that's not just, I'd say, yeah, you don't want what's fair just, do you? Really? Because there's a price to pay for breaking God's law. If you're made for eternity, doesn't it stand to reason you have to pay the price eternally? First Thessalonians, actually Second Thessalonians, the first chapter. Let me just read this. It stands on its own, beginning in the middle of verse 7. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, actually chapter 1, middle of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus, talk about his second coming and his judgment. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Yeah, we just need to pause. You just need to think about what you just heard. You don't hear that verse mentioned too much in church. That's frightening. You need to give that to people. Your unbelieving friends, if you really care about them, you really love them, they need to know that. That. And that's Jesus. Oh, Jesus is meek and mild and pats little children on the head. Jesus is coming back to do serious business with the world and unbelievers. This is why we call people to repentance. Make the turn so that doesn't happen to you. It's the first word of the gospel, repentance is. It's as essential to salvation as faith because they're two sides of the same coin. It's like you tell someone, leave Orlando to come to Miami. Well, you're leaving someplace to go someplace else. That's repentance and faith. We tell people, turn to God, trust in Jesus as the means of having their sins forgiven. Don't be under any illusions, folks. Don't, not everyone that you talk to about this is going to see it, hear it, get it. That's the nature of faith, which is the fifth and last thing Paul talks about in this text. I want you to see real quick. It comes in verses 32 to 34 of the text. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection, the Athenians, of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Huh. So some, most, who heard the message probably laughed or sneered. That's what that word mocked means. <laughs> really, you're talking to me about a God-man who resurrected? I mean, can't you do better than that? The Epicureans probably reacted that way. Because for them, life is 70, 80 years, die, take the birth... You know, take the big dirt nap, and that's all there is. Many people, if not most, intuitively do know there is life after death. They're just not sure where they're going. So that's why others said, come back and tell me more, Paul. So let's see how Paul responded and how you can with your disciple-making. Verse 33, Paul, so Paul went out from their midst. Paul departed. Paul took off. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Basically, when you share your faith, you're going to get three kinds of reaction to your gospel presentation, your evangelism. Yes, no, maybe. And Paul's response is here. To the mockers, the no-nos, no, 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 we don't want that. He left them right where they were. Because there comes a time, folks, you know this with your family members especially, old friends, you've shared more than once. You've said, you've posted, you've emailed, you've written all that you can. People can be stiff-necked and they just want to debate you just to win an argument. They don't want Christ. So what does the Bible tell us to do? Shake the dust off your feet. Don't cast pearl before swine. That's Jesus' way of saying don't give anything valuable, pearls, gospel to a swine, to a pig, to someone that isn't going to know what to do with it. They're not going to want it. 
Sometimes you just have to come to that realization. I can't give them any more gospel truth than I can. Right? Some will come, they'll repent, they'll believe in Christ. It says in the text, some joined him and believed. That Greek word faith, that, I, that idea of joining is something that's stuck together by glue, fastened together like cement. You better believe those new disciples, those new believers, they stuck to Paul like glue. And that's what the gospel can do for you when you accept it. The gospel's life-saving, folks. It's literally a rescue from the world and the judgment to come. And no wonder we cling to it. And guess what? Then we share it. Take five to give five. I've been way over five minutes in this message. So what I've given you is all the information that you can condense if you just think of those five things you need to talk about. God, man, inability, gospel, and faith. Now, since I'm about out of time, what I want to do is give you five practical suggestions or ways to give five. Real quick, take these down if you're a note taker. Number one, we always say this, pray. Pray before you talk. Talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. Ask the Lord to lead you to his elect. Keep praying for the lost in your life and with fellow Christians. We give you a monthly prayer list in our church, and the first page is all the list of names and family members that you, the church, have given us. Take a day, break it down in sections, however you want, and pray for them, for their salvation. Number two, after pray, apply. Apply the gospel in your life on a daily basis. The transforming power of the gospel should be evident in your life. Watch your walk before your talk. Pray, apply, and number three, testify. As a witness, tell people what God and his gospel have done in your life. They may be able to debate you on theology and points of doctrine. They cannot tell you your life has not been changed by the gospel, especially if they've known your before and after story. B-C-A-B. Number four, pray, apply, testify, say hi. That's more alliteration for you, but that's just an extra treat. It does make it easier to remember. Say hi just means welcome people. Be hospitable. Invite people into your home or out for a meal or coffee What with a goal. And the goal is, if not that one time, another time, sharing the gospel with them. And number five, pray, apply, testify, say hi, just try. That's genius stuff, isn't it, right there? Get out of your comfort zone. Bring a tract or a CCC visitor card. Invite someone to church. Look, we don't, we don't uh, put these out on that back table as you come in or go out just for yuck's sake. These are tracts to take with you. The story, we have several kind. The phone number and, e and website to the church is printed on the back. Here's one about... The questions, another version of take five to give five. We all have questions, and they actually break down the four questions I talked about into seven different ones. That's a track, and these are our new visitor cards. And you just take these and say, we meet Sundays here at 1030, and you're going to hear the gospel every week, and check it out. So use these resources. Use these tools. That's what they're for. Seize opportunities to take risks for the sake of the gospel. That's what the men and women, by the way, did on that plane, on that flight I mentioned. 
in the beginning that was going to crash. The man said, quote, that flight experience was a wake-up call to speak the gospel more often and more boldly to my unbelieving friends and family. God had grabbed us with a word, something like, any moment could be your last. You're not in control. Be ready. Your next walk around your neighborhood could be your last moment on earth. Your condo complex could tumble down on you while you're sleeping, end quote. He said that, by the way, before the Surfside tragedy. And he added, quote, your next drive could end in twisted metal. Your life could be over before you drop your kids off at school or daycare. That's all true. The Bible says it. Tomorrow's not promised to you. Life is but a vapor. <laughs> be ready. Get people ready. Let's learn from this and take five to give five. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for Christ and his shed blood, his sacrifice on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection that saves those that have turned to you and trusted in Jesus alone as the payment, the penalty for their sins, that by virtue of trusting in him and him alone, who he is and what he's done, their sins could be forgiven, Lord, and they could escape the coming judgment of the world to come, maybe sooner than later. Lord, and if anyone in this room or within the sound of my voice has not yet done that, let today be the day of salvation that they turn to you and trust in Christ, leave their old sin and selfishness behind, want abundant peace and joy now in this life and life with you in eternity forevermore, and that they could escape the condemnation and judgment that is hell. We pray someone will come forward maybe today and talk to us about that, Lord, or sometime very, very, very soon as you permit them to have that time. And Lord, give us the courage. Give us the filling of the Spirit that we would be obedient to the prompting of the Spirit to at least take five, to give five, Lord, to share our faith, to pray for lost people and to want to love them to the ultimate, to the max by giving the gospel to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 